Well, this morning we are launching into a new series in the book of Acts, and we're going to be in for several weeks, really, and I love the book of Acts. I've never preached through the book of Acts, and uh, I'm looking forward to, to going through this book with you, and we're going to be doing it a little different way than maybe we normally do. We're going to kind of be tackling big chunks at times, uh, zeroing in on smaller passages at times, kind of doing an overview, a survey, if you will, of the book rather than a detailed study. We're not going to cover every single chapter and verse in Acts. Uh, that's a great way to go through it. We could do it over the next year. Uh, we're not going to go that in detail, but we are going to be doing kind of a survey. And at times we'll be covering several chapters maybe, and I'll zero in on part of it, or we might kind of do an overview of all of it, and times we might skip ahead a little bit. And so it's going to be important for you uh, to, to follow along and to, you can read along each week. This week we're in the first two chapters. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll be in the next two chapters of chapters three and four if you want to read ahead. And Acts is the story, really, of God's Spirit working through God's people to accomplish God's mission. If I was to boil the book down to that, uh, to one sentence, that would be it. Be it. The story of God's Spirit working through God's people to accomplish God's mission. It's traditionally been called the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, you might even better phrase it, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through God's people. Um, and it especially follows two apostles in particular, uh, Peter and Paul, as we'll see as we go through the book together. And as you read through the book of Acts, what you begin to see is that God's Holy Spirit is unstoppable. That's why we're calling the series Unstoppable. He's moving in power to accomplish God's will in the world. God's gospel, you'll see, and God's gospel advancing mission is unstoppable, you'll see, as you read through the book of Acts. God's spirit-empowered church is unstoppable, you'll see, as you read through the book of Acts. Because what you'll see is you'll see people in the power of the Holy Spirit having gospel conversations, ministering to people, sharing the gospel, planting churches. And what you'll see is this. They're mocked. They're beaten and whipped. They're put in jail and prison. And they're murdered. And people continue to believe. The church continues to multiply. The gospel continues to go forth. And you get to the end of the book and it's kind of open-ended because it's just continuing to go forth. Because the gospel's unstoppable. God's spirit is unstoppable. God's spirit and power. People are unstoppable. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, 2,000 years later, with the blood of millions of Christians shed over the years, the gospel still goes forth. And this church is here today because of this unstoppable Spirit of God accomplishing the unstoppable mission of God through God's people. So what I want you to see over these weeks, several weeks, is that you are part of an unstoppable movement of God if you're a Christian this morning. You may feel unimportant. You may feel underwhelming. You may feel average, and all that's fine. You might say, I'm just normal. And you'll find out that God uses normal, underwhelming, average people and below average people to do outstanding, abnormal, otherworldly things by the power of His Spirit. You may feel like you've wasted much of your life, and maybe you have. But I'm telling you this morning, if you're a Christian, you're a part of an unstoppable mission. And God has placed His Holy Spirit inside of you. And God has called you to this unstoppable mission to spread his gospel, to make disciples, and to really be a part of something much bigger than you, much bigger than me, much bigger than North Park, much bigger than your family, much bigger than anything we can really comprehend. Now, this morning, we'll be in the first two chapters of Acts, as I said. We're going to be talking about the birth of the church. You know, there are some events that change your life forever. When I became a Christian, right? When I repented of my sin and put my faith in Jesus, it changed my life forever. When I married Christy some nearly eight years ago, changed my life forever. We had our children, first child, second child, changing my life, continues to change my life, right, forever. We have those things, those moments in your life that just kind of change you forever. And, of course, Jesus being number one, foundational, supremely above everything else. And there are some moments that, and some events and some things that change the world forever. Not just you. It changes everything. Somewhere, somewhere along the way, someone invented the wheel. And we, most of us, drove here this morning, and we can be thankful for that because that has changed the world forever. I think back to the printing press. 
that has changed the world forever. It's, it's, it's changed Christianity forever. It's changed the world forever. You have a copy of the scriptures in your hand this morning if you do because of that printing press. Somewhere along the way, someone decided that bacon would be something to experiment with at breakfast, and that changed the world forever. And uh, it's good for other things as well at all three meals of the day. But, um, but seriously, um, electricity, you can name it, you know. But there, there are things that literally change the world forever. Now, here's the thing. The birth of the church has absolutely, absolutely changed the entire world forever. Forever. The moment that happens in Acts 1 and 2, in Acts 2 at Pentecost, changed the world forever. The world's never gotten over it. I want you to think about the hospitals that have the name Baptist or Methodist or whatever on them. Seventh-day Adventist, you name it, whatever, right? All these different hospitals that are attached to religious organizations that are attached to Jesus, that are attached to his mission, that, are, that go back to the spread of the church. Think about all the schools that have been started. Think about all the relief programs that have been started, all the poor and impoverished that have been fed, the sick that have been cared for over the centuries, all over the world. Think about the countless lives that have been changed by the gospel. That's the really big one. Eternities that have been changed as the gospel has been shared all over the world. People come to know Jesus. Lives that have been changed. People that have been set free from addictions and people that have been set free from sterile, dead religion. And they've just been changed from the inside out. Their lives have been put back together. They're, they've been put on mission with God. And their eternity and the whole life is different. The world has never been the same since the birth of the church. The church is God's vehicle for accomplishing his mission. The word literally just means called out ones, ecclesia, the called out ones. If you're part of the church, you're part of the called out ones. What that means is Jesus has called you out of the world to belong to himself and to live on mission in the world. That's what the church is. And it's God's vehicle for accomplishing his mission. God had a mission before he had a church. We've talked about this before. It's been said God's church doesn't have a mission as much as God's mission has a church. Church is not a building this morning. It's not a program this morning. It's not any of these things that many times, not bad things, but we attach to it and we associate with it. It's God's people. I heard someone say, <laughs> I thought this was kind of funny. I read this week where someone said, you remember the little story, right, uh, that we used to do when we were little? This is the church, right? This is the steeple. And they said, cute little heresy, right? Uh, <laughs> and it, it's funny, but it is. This isn't the church. But we grew up with that, right? This is the church. This is the steeple. And open it up and see all the people. This is the church, right? And close the doors and look. And what do you have? You have a box. A box that will burn up one day. And people on the inside that will live forever. The church is the people. So, well, we know that. But see, we, we get away from that so easily. The church is not a building. It's not a program. It is the people of God. The blood-bought spirit and dwelt, people of God. And in the New Testament, it's very clear that the church is also a movement. It's a movement. You see, in the church is the movement of God's spirit in and through his people. When churches get their eyes, when we get our eyes off the idea that we are a moving, missional, called out people of God, we begin to get attached to the wrong things. We get attached to programs, for instance. Ministries, uh, things that we do. Maybe things that have worked well. Maybe things that don't work well anymore. Maybe things, whatever. We just get, a, we get attached to these things. We get attached to bylaws. We get attached to systems. We get attached to organization. We get attached to the process of how we make decisions. We get attached to buildings. And there's nothing wrong with any of the things I mentioned. Actually, they're all necessary things, right? We need bylaws in our world today. We need a process for making decisions. We need buildings. We need some programs. There's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong with having certain traditions. But when we get detached from the movement, from being the missional people of God, the movement of God on earth through his people, we will attach ourselves more so to those things, and that will kill a church. We'll kill it. We become critics. We become spectators that sit on the sideline and watch. We become consumers. Feed me, feed me, feed me. And we'll stop being disciple makers. 
And following Jesus is what? It's obeying Jesus, right? Being like Jesus, obeying Jesus. And what? Fishing for people, helping other people obey Jesus, trust and follow Jesus. It's really two simple things. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Come follow me. Pattern your life after me. Obey me. Trust and follow Jesus. Help other people do the same thing. Those are the non-negotiables. But when we, do, if that's not the main thing and the driving force of the church and the driving force of you as an individual Christian and what you think about church, if that's not really the first thing you think about when you think about getting up and going to church in the morning, that you're going to meet with God's people, to gather with God's people, you'll begin to find yourself getting attached to other things. And they're not bad things, but they're not supposed to be ultimate things. They're not supposed to be ultimate things. And we'll find ourselves resistant to change. We'll find ourselves resistant to trying new things. And when you read through Acts, as you're going to find out, they're always having to deal with change. We never done it like that before. Oh, wait till you get to Acts 15. Acts 10. What do you mean letting the Gentiles in? What do you mean they don't have to get circumcised? What do you mean they don't have well, was, what do you mean they don't have to keep the whole law? Right? They, I mean, they start weirding out, right? As the gospel goes forth and as the movement starts happening, people start coming to know the Lord. We've never done it like this before, right? That is just church one-on-one. When, when the church is on mission and the church is reaching people, the church will do a lot of things it never did before. That's just 101. And when we're not doing things we've never did before, we're not living on mission usually. It's usually a sign that we've grown stacked. So in this series, we're going to be rediscovering our roots as the unstoppable movement of God. And we're going to start in Acts 1 and 2. Now, I'm not going to read all the, both chapters. I'm going to read sections of it and kind of walk you through it and give you some takeaways, some overviews that we need to pull away from this. Start in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, let me stop there. <laughs> The gospel the Acts is written by Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke. Paul tells us he was a doctor. He was obviously an educated man. He was a smart man. He writes with precise detail. I love his gospel. It's the longest of the gospels, if memory serves me correctly, even though it doesn't have the most chapters, the most words. It's a very detailed gospel. It's where we were at last week on Easter Sunday. We looked at his resurrection account, his last resurrection account of Jesus. And, this per and what Luke, he says in the first book, he's referring to the gospel of Luke. So Acts is part two, really, of Luke's gospel. You got Luke's gospel part one, Luke's gospel part two. We call the first one the gospel of Luke, the second one the Acts of the Apostles. Both written by Luke, inspired of the Holy Spirit. And this person he's writing to, we don't know who this person was. People have all kinds of theories. Let me just tell you, here's a big reveal. We don't know, okay? We can have theories, but we don't really know. His name means friend of God or lover of God. You see Theophilus, phileo, the friendship love. Right, And so it's friend of God or lover of God, one who loves God. And he says, I dealt with you, all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the key word there in that first verse that helps you understand all of Acts <coughs> is the word began. The two words, Jesus began. Jesus started something that continues in Acts and continues today. The, as, when the Spirit comes, we're going to see in just a moment, he works through God's people to continue the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Now, let's skip down to verse 4. And while staying with them, so verses 2 and 3, we see that, that Jesus has raised. He shows himself to the disciples. We dealt with that last week in, in Luke. And he ascends to heaven, right? That's the ascension. Tells them he's coming back again. In verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In verse 6 there, we're seeing that the disciples, now that Jesus has been raised and he's about to ascend back to the Father, the disciples are now thinking, okay, now maybe that he's, he's 
He's done all this. Now it's time for the kingdom to come on earth. In the the finality. Now it's time for him to reign. Now it's time for us to get our little chairs beside Jesus and kick the Romans out and tell them how it's going to be. Maybe now's the time. And Jesus says, you're going to have power. But it's not the kind of power you're thinking. And he kind of rebukes them in a kind way and says, it's really none of your business when God wants to do all that. And Jesus doesn't deny that there's coming a finality to the kingdom and an earthly reign that's coming because heaven is coming to earth. And Jesus will rule and reign over all in a very literal sense. But Jesus says, that's really not up to you. That's up to God's timing. But you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And then in verses 9 through 11, got a little ahead of myself earlier, We see the ascension and the promise of Christ's return. And then in verses 12 through 26, the disciples decide they need to replace Judas. Judas, you'll remember, is the one who betrayed Jesus. And he was one of the original 12. And they need to replace Judas. And some people think, well, they shouldn't have done that. The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. Maybe the Apostle Paul is supposed to take that spot. But that really misses the point here. Peter tells them, we need to replace Judas because this is fulfillment of prophecy. And he, tells, he, he points them to how one would betray Jesus and how they were supposed to replace him. And so you see the replacement happen there in verses 12 through 26. And then in chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? So let's pause there. It then goes on to begin to give us a list of all the different types of languages and people that were there. And so what happens here is you've got 120 people gathered in this, likely this upper room, and they're praying and they're waiting on the Holy Spirit because Jesus had told them, you go to Jerusalem and you wait. You don't leave there. You just wait. The Spirit's coming. And so he didn't mean years. He meant days, right? And then on this day called Pentecost, we see the Holy Spirit come in this power. This rushing wind, this fire. Now, Pentecost was called Pentecost because it fell on the 50th day after the first Sunday after Passover. The word means 50th. F.F. Bruce writes, quote, Among Hebrew and Aramaic-speaking Jews, it was known as the Feast of Weeks and also as the Day of First Fruits. Because on that day, the first fruits of wheat harvest were presented to God. So it was a significant day for the Jewish people. Big festival day. Now, day of first fruits, that's significant because what is happening here? The first fruits of the church is happening, right? God's Spirit's coming in power, and we're about to see here in just a moment, thousands of people are about to get saved. First fruits. And we see the Spirit comes like a rushing wind, it says. Well, you'll see wind and fire throughout the Bible for God's pr- symbolizing God's presence. Uh, in Ezekiel 37, you read about the Valley of Dry Bones. If, you, if you've read the Old Testament, you might be familiar with the story. There's these... they, They speak over these dry bones, they pray, and the Spirit of God blows across there, right, like a wind, reviving those dry bones. And so the rushing wind symbolizing the Spirit of God coming into fire, also a symbol of God's presence in the Old Testament, Exodus 3, the burning bush, you might remember, Moses. So these are things that were synonymous with the presence of God. And then we pick up in verse 11, second part of verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, they said. And all were amazed and they perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I'll pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vaporous smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the Lord, the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by. So the people, they see this happening. The 120 that are in this room, they have obviously spilled out into the streets, and they're speaking in this, these tongues, it says, and people are hearing them in their language, and they think they've obviously drank a little bit too much. And Peter, kind of almost in a joking way, kind of goes, way too early for us to be drunk, right? That's not the problem. It's too early for that. And then he goes directly to the Old Testament and says, <coughs> almost as if to say, open your Bibles to Joel, right? And he, he begins to show them how what they're seeing is fulfillment of prophecy. And what he's saying is, you are in the last days. See, the, the beginning of the church is really the beginning of the end. Jesus ushered in the last days. You are living in the last days. They are living in the last days. And what I mean by that, the next thing on God's prophetic calendar is Jesus coming back, right? And so when he talks about the day, he's talking about judgment day. All these things that are going to happen before judgment day. Now, verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, Peter goes on to say, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. After this, we see 3,000 people are saved right there, right? First megachurch, saved and baptized, 3,000 on the spot. And the church goes from 120 to 3,000 in a day. No programs, no building, just the power of God's Spirit working through God's people, spreading the gospel, saving people, calling them to himself. Verse 42 through 46 gives us a picture of what the early church looked like after you see all these people come to faith in Christ, so now you've got this thousands of people now living in Jerusalem that are part of this first church. And it says in verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God wasn't done, in other words. They continued to grow. There's going to be another large harvest after this. And so in the birth of the church, what we ultimately see here is the sovereign God has sent His Holy Spirit to empower His people for ministry. And the Spirit uses God's word to build God's church. I'm going to kind of walk you through that statement now. Three points. Number one, the sovereign God has sent his spirit. All through the first two chapters of Acts, God's sovereignty is on display. Verse 4 of chapter 1, it says they are to wait on the promise of the Father. In other words, it's God's timing, not theirs. They're not going to be able to manipulate this. They are to wait on God, and when God's good and ready, God will send the Spirit. Verse 7, it is not for them to know the times or seasons. The Father has fixed by His own authority. 
His authority. He is sovereign. He has absolute authority. Verse 24. The Lord knew the hearts of all the people that he had chosen to be an apostle, of who he had chosen to be an apostle. When they get together, we didn't read that portion, but when they get together to decide who is going to replace Judas, they're so confident that the Lord knows the hearts of everybody, and they have selected two people that they know are fully qualified. They're godly men. They have both saw Jesus raised from the dead. Either one of them would make great apostles. And they so wanted to know that God was in control that they cast lots and said, may God determine where it goes. Now, we don't make decisions that way anymore, do we? Right? We don't pick committees that way or deacons that way or hire staff that way. Right? Just cast lots and, okay, it's, it's you. you know? And you won't see them do it again after that one moment. Because Acts 2 changed everything, I believe. But, they were, but that was a very common way for them to do things in the Old Testament up until this point in their culture. And it showed confidence that even God determines the lot. In verse 23, chapter 2, verse 23, Peter tells us that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. In other words, God was not surprised or taken aback when the Messiah was crucified like everybody else was. It was his plan, it was his purpose from the foundation of the world. As has been said, Jesus is plan A, not plan B. And then in chapter 2, verse 47, we see it was the Lord who added to their number. All through both chapters, there are just time and time again, it is pointing out to us that God is sovereign over everything, including his church, including salvation, including the building of the church, including the growth of the church, including people coming to faith in Christ, including the gospel. Every single thing, we see God's sovereignty on display, and we see them showing absolute confidence in that. And Acts is the story of a God who is in control of all things. You'll see throughout Acts God's sovereignty on display to advance his mission. And when you read Acts, you, what you really are starting to learn, one of the things you learn, it's foundational, is that you can't manipulate God. That he is in control and that it's his mission, it's his purpose, and it's his church. That's why the church and the mission and the gospel is ultimately unstoppable. It's because a sovereign God has deemed it so. And we are learning as we study Acts that our lives are more than what we make them. The church is more than about pragmatism. There is a sovereign, authoritative God at work in your life and in the church. And we need to recognize that. Imagine for these people, these early followers of Jesus. They had seen a man that they thought to be the Messiah nailed to a cross, which they thought, which their, the Bible, the Deuteronomy told them, meant that he was cursed of God. And they were shattered, despondent, confused, mournful. They're going back to their jobs, right? And they're thinking questions like this. Is God really in control if this guy's the Messiah? Would God let his son, would he let the Messiah be crucified? Then post-resurrection, we find out now they are more confident than ever in the sovereignty of God. Because... When your friend that you believe is the Messiah has been crucified, you've seen it and has been buried, and then you meet him resurrected from the dead and you see the scars, you don't have a problem anymore with the sovereignty of God. And when he looks at you and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, like he does in Matthew 28, you, don't, you can't debate that anymore when you're looking at a resurrected Messiah. So the gospel and the mission and the church begins to go on this, we see this unstoppable movement through Acts. And one of the things that's grounded is God's sovereignty. Because as they begin to realize that God was in control of all things, even the death of Jesus, it releases them to just really go all in with God. When I was a kid, I um, went in sixth grade, we got to go on this field trip to Washington, D.C. And... Uh, it was uh, it's still the most memorable field trip I ever went on. And, you know, big trip, big buses, you know, family went. I think my grandparents went. You know, it was like, you know, I grew up in a little small town in Alabama. So it was the biggest city I'd ever been to, most significant city I've ever been to. And first time I think that I'd ever traveled that wasn't to the beach, right? And so, so we go to Washington, D.C. to spend a week there. And I remember one of my favorite things about going to Washington, D.C. was getting to go on the White House tour. Because it's like, this is where the, the president Right? The most powerful man in the United States of America lives in this particular house. And so in sixth grade, you're just kind of like, wow, you're in awe. And you know how sixth graders are. Imagine if I would have had one of my buddies. This didn't happen. And he would have come to me, and, and maybe he would have tried to get a group of us together and tried to give us maybe a more unguided tour. Right? Maybe he was going to take us behind the scenes a little bit. Because there's places they won't let you go at the White House. There's places 
that you get to go on the tour and places you don't get to go. So imagine one of my little troublemaker friends, and he would have decided, hey, let's ditch the group, right, at lunch, and we'll go this way or whatever, and we'll, we'll get a little unguided tour. And I can tell you, I was the most unadventurous kid that's ever lived just about, and I would not have done it, right? I would have been terrified. I would not. I didn't take risks like that as a kid. I wasn't a troublemaker. That just wasn't me. My, some of my friends were, but it, I would have been the conscience in the group trying to get them to not do it. But if the president, who if I'm remembering correctly at the time was Bill Clinton, I mean, it was either him or Bush. I'm, I'm in trouble to remember in sixth grade, the first Bush or, or, or Clinton. If he would have come by the group and he would have said, hey, I want to take you all on a little more behind-the-scenes tour, well, I would have been the first one in the front of the line. I wouldn't have questioned anything because he has the authority to do that. He's in control. He can make that call because it's really kind of like his house, right? This is where he lives. He, he's the guy with the power. So I wouldn't have been hesitant at that point because in that area he had sovereignty he had authority he had power he had control and see when you understand who's in control and you believe they're in control within that sphere their sphere of influence it releases you to trust them and if we believe that God is really sovereign that he's in absolute control over everything he is the sovereign one that Jesus is sovereign over all things, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. If we really believe that, if we believe he's in control of all things, and he's advancing his agenda and his vision, that the gospel's his story, that he wasn't caught off guard by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. When the gospel's preached, that people get saved because God so deems it that people get saved, and he calls people to himself. We're so confident in that. This is how we should respond to the sovereignty of God. We should trust God. We should trust God enough to leverage our lives for the sake of his mission. Why would you not leverage your entire life for the sake of the mission of God and his purposes if God is sovereign over all things, including your life? If his act says later on, if he's even deemed the places you live, the time you live in, and your address has even been so designed by God, why would you not trust him implicitly? He has a plan. He has a purpose for you. The second thing we see, not only has the sovereign God sent his spirit, the Holy Spirit empowers the church for ministry. And that's the, really the big key takeaway. The Holy Spirit coming in power. It's the key message from the first two chapters of Acts that we see played out through the rest of the book. We're continuing what Jesus began. As Jesus went forth in the power of the Spirit as the anointed one of God, as the Messiah, now that he has resurrected and ascended into heaven, now we go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit because Jesus has poured out the Spirit upon his church. Verse 4 in chapter 1, Jesus told them they needed to wait. They weren't to go anywhere yet. They were to wait. He had already get, Matthew, we read about the Great Commission, right? And here he says, I want you to go wait on the Holy Spirit. You're going to be my witnesses, but I want you to wait. What's he doing? He's saying, I don't want you going without my power, without the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't want you doing this in your power. I want you doing this in my power. And then the key verse, the theme verse of the book of Acts, I believe, is Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You can actually outline the book that way. You can start in Jerusalem, a few chapters, and it goes to Judea and Samaria. And you see, when it gets to Rome, it's going to the end of the earth. Acts 2 shows us Pentecost. And this is when the Holy Spirit comes in what we call new covenant power. He was already at work in the world. We see him all the way back in Genesis 1, hovering over the face of the waters. It's not that all of a sudden Jesus ascended into heaven and he came back as the Holy Spirit. And so now there's no longer a Jesus. Now there's a Holy Spirit. And at one time in the Old Testament, he was the Father. That's called modalism, right? That's heresy. We believe in something called the Trinity, one God eternally existing in three persons. And so Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. He sends the Holy Spirit who comes now in power. It's not that he wasn't here before, but he's in a new way, in a new power, new covenant power we're calling it. In Pentecost, what we see happen in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit's poured out and they're speaking in tongues and all this stuff's happening right and the rushing wind gushing through the windows and the flames of fire, that was a one-time event that has never been repeated in the history of the world and never will be repeated again. All right. You say, well, I heard this story. That is a one-time event that has never been repeated in the history of the world, never be repeated again. You won't find it again in Acts happening in that way and you won't find it in the church today happening that way. New covenant power. The Holy Spirit came. He is here to empower his church. And we see this one-time event. Now, here's what we need to understand. 
the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because you you, we get confused sometimes. We see baptism of the Holy Spirit. We see being filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Have you, sometimes you'll have certain Christians that will ask you, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the moment you repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus, you were baptized in the Holy Spirit. What that means is he came to live in you, didn't dwell you. You have God's Spirit. Ezekiel, God, God promised, I will put my spirit within them and cause them to walk in my commands. That is the promise of the new covenant. And that has happened to you if you've repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. And so he, oh, he helps us to understand the Bible. He helps us to obey the Bible. He helps us to bear the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, it's the fruit of the Spirit. We can't really bear it apart from him. And so if we don't have, if we don't have the signs of the Spirit in our life, and there's very good reason to doubt whether we have the Holy Spirit in our life, which means we haven't been converted if we don't have the Holy Spirit in our life. So... Upon faith in Christ, you're indwelt by the Spirit. But then there's something else we call being filled with the Spirit. And this happens many times. Many fillings of the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit, the term sounds like you need to be get more of God. Right? I need more of the Holy Spirit in my life. I need more of God in my life. But really, it's about God having more of you. It's living your life fully yielded to God. Fully yielded to the Word of God. Fully yielded to the direction and the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God. It's not getting more of him. It's him having more of you. And so the Holy Spirit has come, and he indwells believers. And the reason he is there, reasons I mentioned earlier, and to empower you to be Christ's witness and to carry out the ministry of Christ and to, and to, and to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit to declare the gospel, to minister to people, and to advance forth God's mission. The Greek word you see in Acts 1.8 when he says, you will receive power is the Greek word from which we get our word dynamite, right? And what I'm telling you, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, it is like a stick of dynamite has went off. Things will not be the same, right? There is, there is power that comes into your life. The very power of God is present in your life now. And, but we have to make a choice daily whether to yield to the Spirit or to try to do our things our own way. Because just because I have the Holy Spirit in my life doesn't mean that I can't resist the Holy Spirit, as the Bible says, that I can't grieve the Holy Spirit, as the Bible says. I'm supposed to walk in the Spirit. I'm supposed to be filled with the Spirit. I'm supposed to yield to the Spirit. And in verses 1 through 8 in chapter 2, when Pentecost happens, what everyone wants to focus on is the languages and the tongues. We've got whole movements built off of it. Everybody wants to focus on that. Now, here's what's happening. The Holy Spirit is empowering them supernaturally to speak languages they did not know so that people hear the gospel in their own language. You say, what? And what these are people that are largely Jewish and people that have been proselytized, people that maybe Gentiles who have become Jews. They're God-fearers and things of that nature. This is not really the, the Gentile movement doesn't happen to Acts 10. But you, but you see, they've been scattered. They've been dispersed. Now they're together in Jerusalem, the big festival, Pentecost, right? And they're, they're there, and they hear the gospel in their own language. And the reason God did it the way he did it is not because, I mean, most of them, many of them would, could have probably spoken the same language, but they had different dialects. They have different languages because they've scattered to different regions. Some of them are bilingual. He wants to show the power of the Holy Spirit to empower his church to declare his truth. It's not as important of how they're saying what they're saying. The most important thing to understand in Acts 2 is what they're saying. Is that when the Spirit of God comes apart upon you, you declare the mighty deeds of God. And you will proclaim the word of God. And so the Holy Spirit empowers us to obey God, to bear witness to Christ, to minister to others. And if we try to do those things in our power, we will do them, we'll be weak, and we generally won't do them. <laughs> we just won't. We'll check out, generally, when we try to do it in our power. So how do you respond to the empowering of the Spirit? If God is sovereign, we trust Him. If the Spirit has come to empower us, we need to surrender. Another word is yield. We need to be surrendered to the leadership of the Spirit of God in our life. When we, by faith, turn from sin and look to God in faith, we put our faith in him and we believe that we've been given the spirit of God as we have. We begin to walk not in our power, but in his power. We, we, we yield to God's word. We're filled with God's spirit. God empowers us. Now, God's spirit empowers us to obey God, to live on mission, not to simply live the life we want to live. We talk a lot today about achieving my destiny and accomplishing my dreams 
And the Holy Spirit did not come in power to simply help you accomplish your dreams or achieve some man-centered vision for your life. I don't mean that as a slam or a knock. I'm just telling you. I mean, you let me accomplish my dreams and my visions for my life as they were. I don't know where I'd be or what I'd be doing right now, but it wouldn't be this. And so the Holy Spirit has come to change our desires and to change us. Doesn't mean he makes us miserable, we'll do things we don't want to do, but he makes us, we change and we become, we begin to want to do the things that God would want us to do. He changes our desires from the inside, but he hasn't come to help us accomplish our dreams. He's come to help us accomplish God's dream for us, for his church. And you will not experience the spirit-filled life or the spirit-empowered life while trying to live a me-centered life. The Holy Spirit will not be used by us. He will not be manipulated by us. There people, you'll see it in Acts. People try to do it. They try to play a game with him. God straight up kills one group, <laughs> a couple of them. Uh, another one, man, Peter looks at him and says, you better repent. You better pray to God that he lets you repent. It's, this is bad. Man. You don't mess with that, right? And so we don't, we don't try to manipulate God to fit our desires. We surrender to the Spirit of God, and the chief way we do that is submitting to the Word that he has inspired, God's Word. And when we're dwelled by God's Spirit, living a life yielded to God, a Spirit-filled life, we will be led by God into ministry situations and we'll experience the power of the Holy Spirit in those situations. See, some people want to be surrendered just enough to God's Spirit to be empowered to not ruin their life with sin, but not surrendered enough that God might ruin their plans for their life. Well, I want, I want to be yielded just to God just enough. I don't want to do something stupid and mess my life up, mess my marriage up, mess my job up. But I don't really want to be so all in that God might mess up what I got going. He might call me to do this or want me to do this or do this. And that's not surrender. If we're surrendered, we will find ourselves doing things we would not normally do. Doing things we wouldn't normally be comfortable doing. Sharing the gospel. Ministering to people that are not like us. Obeying God when it's hard. See, if we're unwilling to do the things the Spirit wants us to do, to do, we don't need to expect to experience His power. The Spirit is not here to help you live a safe life. He's here to help you live an obedient life. Some people treat the Holy Spirit and being empowered by the Holy Spirit. If we're not careful, we, almost, we, we avoid the very situations that God has sent Him to empower us in. It's almost like when you get on the airplane and, you know, there's the seat with all the leg room, but it's got the big door on it. And when you sit there the first time, they kind of scare you to death because they're like, now, by the way, if the plane goes down and we have to make an a, a emergency landing over here in Lake Baldwin, then you're going to need to help remove this door. You're like, I don't want that kind of pressure, right? And so you'll pray more on a plane then than any other day. You're like, I want the leg room, but I don't really want that pressure, right? And so you're sitting there hoping the whole time, like any other time, that you don't want the plane to go down. But you especially don't want to be the one that's in control of removing the huge door, Right? Some people treat the Holy Spirit like he's an airbag in the car. He's there. I'm glad he's there. Don't really want it to have to go off. It's like an emergency. He's more like the engine. And you're not going anywhere good without him. You're not going where, to the destination God wants to take you without him. We need to be fully yielded to the Spirit. If you want to experience the fullness of the Spirit and, and the Spirit-empowered life, you need to be willing to step into areas and situations and opportunities he came to empower you. You'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses. Some of us wonder, why don't I experience the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in my life? When is the last time that we attempted to do anything that he came to empower us to do? I'm telling you. You get obedient to God and you begin opening up your mouth and talking to lost people about Jesus, the Spirit will meet you there in power. He will empower you to do what Jesus promised he would empower you to do. The third thing, the last thing, is the Holy Spirit, we see here in Acts, uses the Word of God to build the church. The Holy Spirit uses God's Word to build the church. And you see that throughout Acts. The main thing you see is God's people in the power of the Spirit declaring God's Word specifically about Jesus. See, because God's people understand that the Word of God is the very foundation of our lives. You know, a recent poll showed that the number one reason people choose to attend church is because of biblical sermons. I found that encouraging. I wasn't sure whether to believe it or not, but I found it encouraging, right? In Acts 1, 
See, when they choose the new apostle to replace Judas, the first thing I notice when I read that is they were doing it out of obedience to the scriptures. So from the very beginning, even before the Spirit comes in power, they're opening up the Bible and they're seeing things now because Jesus had explained the Scriptures to them and they're going, now we need to obey this. In Acts 2, when they're filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter stands and what does he do? He proclaims God's Word. He opens up God's Word to Joel, an Old Testament prophecy book. And then he, begins, he goes over to the Psalms and he begins to talk about things David says. And he uses about three different passages to begin to preach Jesus to them. He shows them how the outpouring of the Spirit was Joel's prophecy. How they are living in a new time and the Messiah has come and the Spirit's come in power and Judgment Day is coming. Then he shows them in verses 25 through 28 of chapter 2 that David prophesied of the resurrected Messiah. And then in verses 34 and 35 he shows them how David prophesied of an ascended and exalted Messiah sitting at God's right hand. He's saying, David's flesh corrupted. David stayed in the grave still. He's saying, David didn't ascend to the right hand of God. We've seen Jesus ascend. We've seen Jesus raise. He's saying those verses was about David's son, the Messiah. They weren't about David. He's explaining it to them. And then, I love, he goes, and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I love that. He says, salvation is found when you call upon the name of the Lord. He quotes from the Old Testament and says that. And then in verse 36, he says, and God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. He's saying, you know whose name you've got to call on to be saved? And he tells him, the one you killed. Or one you killed, one you crucified. They, man, and they're cut to the heart, it says. It says they're cut to the heart. They're convicted. God's Spirit begins to show them their guilt. And that's what God does. See, evangelistic growth in the church happens through the Spirit using the Word of God. All through Acts, you'll see God's Word proclaimed, people repenting and believing. God's Word, the Bible tells us, is the sword of the Spirit, and the Spirit-inspired Word is used by God's Holy Spirit to bring conviction and change in people's life. And not only that, but spiritual growth happens through using through the Word of God, the Spirit using the Word. In Acts 2.42, at the end of the chapter, we see that the early church, right after all this, as they've got this new influx of believers, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. That's what we have now is the New Testament, is it was originally being given from the apostles. And when Luke describes the early church community after that, and you begin to see all the generosity and all this kind of stuff. That is flowing out of a spirit-empowered people devoted to the Word of God. I've never met someone who was committed to the Scriptures, empowered by the Spirit, who wasn't generous, who wasn't joyful, who wasn't living on mission. It all flows from that. So how do we respond to God using His Word in this way, to the God's Spirit using His Word in this way? We need to be devoted to it. We need to trust God because He's sovereign. We need to surrender to the Holy Spirit to empower us. And we need to be devoted to God's Word because that's what God's Spirit uses to build His church, both evangelistically and spiritual growth. Corporately, we're devoted to teaching the Bible, small groups and in our Sunday morning services because we believe God's Spirit uses God's Word to change lives. Sometimes that means saying hard things. Sometimes that means saying things that are offensive. We don't want to be offensive in the way we say them. But sometimes we know things we say will be offensive and things will be hard. Can you imagine when Peter stood up and looked at a, a, these thousands of people and I'm sure there were religious leaders that were there and he looks at them and he basically says, you killed the Messiah? That's what he told them. He says, God sent the chosen one, the Messiah you've been waiting on forever. And by the way, you nailed him to a cross. That was according to God's divine plan and foreknowledge, but that doesn't escape your guilt. That was a difficult thing to say to these people. It was an, in fact, they'll keep on saying it throughout Acts and sometimes people die for it. Sometimes they're in prison for it and beaten for it. So we have to be willing to say the hard things. But you need to know personally also that God uses His Spirit to build your life spiritually. If the Word of God does not permeate your life, the Spirit of God is not going to empower your life. In Ephesians and Colossians, the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the Word-filled life are the same. Because they work hand in hand. Because the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, according to Ephesians 6. There's no such thing as a Spirit-filled, Word-starved Christian. That person does not ex it just doesn't exist. But you show me a Word-filled, Word-saturated, obedient to the Word of God Christian, I'll show you one that's Spirit-filled. And if you want to see God's power unleashed in your life, Unleashed in your marriage and in your family and in your workplace. Get devoted to the Word of God. 
get devoted to knowing God's Word, obeying God's Word, applying God's Word, letting God's Word shape and form you. Because true devotion says every part of it's true. I can't pick and choose. It's all true. But you know, it's not just enough. What we see in Acts is they didn't just stay in that little room. They're outside the room declaring the Word of God. It's not enough for us to be devoted to the God's Word in our personal lives or us as a church coming together. We've got to be devoted to getting the Word out. Acts is not a story of a lot of church meetings. Most of the action in Acts does not happen in four walls. It doesn't happen in the synagogue, most of it. It doesn't happen in the church. It doesn't happen in the corporate gathering. Most of it happens on the go is where you see God's Spirit using people. Out in the marketplace. If you want to invite the Spirit of God into your workplace, you want to invite the Spirit of God into your neighborhood, start talking about the Word of God. Start sharing the Word of God. Take the sword of the Spirit and lay it down on the lunch table and watch the Spirit of God pick it up and swing it and start using it in people's lives. God uses His Word. He uses, God's Spirit uses His Word to change lives and advance His agenda. And here's the exciting thing. If you are a child of God, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, He has invited you to be a part of this. God doesn't have a plan A, plan B. Plan A is you, and it's the only plan. It's to work through the church to advance His mission. He has given us His Spirit to accomplish it, and so we serve a sovereign God who has given us His Spirit to empower us and given us His very Word to go forward with. Why would we not trust Him? Why would we not surrender? Why would we not devote ourselves to the Word of God with a God like that? Let me ask you this morning. Are you trusting the Lord? Do you trust Him enough to go places and to do things that you wouldn't normally feel comfortable doing? Are you all in? Are you surrendered to Him and to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you devoted to God and His Word? And maybe this morning, maybe this morning you're here and you'd say, you know what, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. You know, the first thing the Spirit does, the primary thing, is He witnesses to Christ. And we see the key here in Acts is the first thing that's happening is they're talking about Jesus and people are getting saved when they realize that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead and that he's coming back again, that he is Lord, that he is Christ, that he is exalted. And before we can have God's spirit in our life and live in a spirit-empowered life, we've got to repent and believe the gospel. We've got to be saved. And so I wanted to tell you this morning that we serve a sovereign God who loves you enough that he sent his son bear your sin on the cross to rise from the dead and if you'll repent and believe the gospel you too can be saved as Peter said the promise is for you and all who are far off the promise of the father that Jesus said was come the promise of the spirit empowered life the promise of the spirit of God in your life to help you know and obey God is for you if you'll repent and you'll believe the gospel let's pray